please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We've worked through one of the great chapters in the Bible, Acts 15, which records the Jerusalem Council. That's that meeting of the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem to bring clarification to the gospel message. And they did just that, a resounding resounding, bolstering of the apostolic gospel, faith alone in Christ alone, Christ plus nothing must trust in Jesus for salvation. The message that had been preached really from Old Testament times, trust in the coming Messiah, and then with the coming of Jesus, the immediate preaching, trust in the finished work of Christ. And early in the church, there was this uprising, if you will, about adding rites and rituals like circumcision to it. Um, The Jews were pressing this, and it caused and called for a council. And they settled the matter in Jerusalem And now we have the aftermath. You remember that Barnabas goes with Mark back to Cyprus, a place that Paul and Barnabas had already brought the gospel to. Now Paul picks Silas, and he moves north, and then he starts to go west to the same places they had been. But then God calls them further westward on this, their second missionary journey, going through places that you will find familiar. Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, places that Paul later wrote great books to, and we're familiar with those. So now let's pick up in Acts 16, starting at verse 1. I'll read down to verse 15 as we see Paul begin his second missionary journey. This is the Word of God. It's inspired, and it is authoritative because it's inspired. We can trust it completely. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after, she was baptized, and her household as well. 
She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Before I pray, I'm reminded of the words of John Calvin who said, The minister's teaching and speaking does no good unless God adds his inward calling. Therefore, let's pray. Father in heaven, please give us insight to your word by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We can understand nothing spiritual apart from your work of illumination. Give us understanding of what we are reading so that we might worship you more genuinely and serve you more gladly and gain insights and pointers and perspective on how we might carry out ministry as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts. It is a book of the Acts of Jesus Christ completed through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to his people. That's just too long of a title. The book of Acts is fine. But it's not just the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, directing his kingdom to grow and expand through the preaching of the gospel. And the book of Acts is the depiction of that early spread. Now, when we read the book of Acts, much of what we're reading is descriptive. It's describing for us how God established his church in those early days, meaning his fulfilled church through the Abrahamic promise to be a blessing to the nations. Now his people expanded beyond any kinds of the normal borders, tribes, tongues, and nations, and now Gentiles of all sorts were coming to faith, and the church is being established really to the uttermost parts of the world insofar as they knew it in those days. That's what the book of Acts is telling us the story of. At the same time that it's descriptive, we have to be careful about those things that are supposed to be normative or we carry on or follow exactly going into the future. The epistles help us understand those things more. But we should be careful not to miss the patterns and the approaches of these early Christians. As they gain, uh, as they come to Christ, as they grow in the Spirit, the churches become more mature, they send out missionaries, and we track a major missionary in Paul and the various people he takes with him. By observing him, we can certainly learn some things that can be applied, or we can compare our own ministry efforts up against. Um, how do our ministry efforts, locally and by way of outreach, um, emulate the kinds of things the apostles did? We can look at the passage that way as well. We're enriched both ways by seeing what God does and then drawing from the things he has done um, ways in which we might compare our own efforts to see if we're on the right track, if we're doing things in the way that God would have us do them. By way of an observation together as we walk through the passage, let's notice Paul's second missionary trip starting here, how it contains the components that are needed for effective gospel ministry. We'll see it to be rather universal, at least at a high level. Now, first of all, let's consider the team that he assembles to go on a second trip. It's a different team from his first one. We know he already had a difference of opinion and sense about Mark's ability to go on this particular trip. So Mark goes with Barnabas back to Cyprus where they had been to check up on the believers there. So Paul picks Silas, Silas otherwise known as Silvanus, a Greek Christian, a Roman citizen as well, someone who was a leader in the church at Jerusalem, a strong early church. Um, It was Silas, among some others, who went with Paul back to Antioch to deliver the decision of the Jerusalem council, clarifying and solidifying their understanding of the gospel. So Silas is a trustworthy man. In fact, Paul calls him a faithful brother in one of his epistles. So he picks Silas to basically replace Barnabas as his partner now going 
what he wanted to do was go from Antioch north a little bit and then work westward back where he had already gone from modern-day Turkey um, and all the, in Galatia, that area, and then wait on the Lord for where he might go. But his plan was to assemble a team to travel back where they were from, where he came from to bring the message of the Jerusalem Council to those churches. So Silas is the first person he picked. But Mark wouldn't be with him this time, so it makes sense he might look for somebody else. Look at verse 1 of our passage. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. So they're already on their trip. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. So this is our introduction to the famed Timothy that we know from the scriptures, the two books that Paul writes to Timothy, when he later became a pastor at Ephesus. A very important person in the Christian church and for Paul personally, Timothy. And he meets him here, at least face to face, for the first time at the beginning of the second missionary journey. Most likely, Timothy came to faith a year earlier when Paul and Barnabas came through Lystra. You remember Lystra? That's where Paul got stoned. They thought to death, threw him outside. He looked awful, like he was dead. They thought he was. And then when he came to and they uh, brought him back to where he could stand again, what did Paul do? He went back to Lystra and preached some more. So you can imagine Timothy was affected by this mission or this missionary Paul. A year had gone by. Now he's described as a disciple. It says in verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So he's assembling a team, and not just any team. These are people that have been identified as leaders in the church who are specially equipped to carry out this particular mission. It's not just anybody going. There's some care taken from the brethren to be sure these are people that we should send out on this kind of a mission. And they're thinking of the specific mission that they're calling them to. Notice what it says later. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Wait a minute. What did we just read? Now, when you go on a mission trip here, we only make you fill out an application. That's all you got to do. But here, Paul recognizes Timothy's gifts. He knows that he's a man that should be on the trip with him. However, he is of Jewish descent, half Jewish descent, but nevertheless, it's noted that he was. His father was not, yet he wasn't circumcised. Now, wait a minute. We just read in the Jerusalem Council that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. It's not. Um, This is now a cultural matter. Circumcision had no spiritual benefit any longer, but there was still a cultural issue that Paul was realistic about given the specific task they were about to go do. If they took Timothy with them uncircumcised as a Jew, that would become the talking point at every place they stopped. They would have to explain uh, his story and why this is the situation. It was an unnecessary hindrance. It was a cultural barrier, so Paul chose to have this done. And Timothy, clearly showing his devotion, agrees to this. And so he is uh, ready to go with Paul. It really comes along with the, the attitude that you hear from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says, "...to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law." though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. It would take away that preliminary distracting discussion about ethnicity and cultural norms and things, and they would be able to go right into the gospel message. Certainly that topic of circumcision would come up among Jewish new believers, 
but there was no reason to start out of the gate this way. You know, later, Titus has a similar situation, and Paul does not require him to be circumcised. Different, different mission, different, set of, uh, different target audience. This last week, I had a great uh, throwback to my own uh, cultural background, if you will. A few months ago, my son Nicholas applied for a scholarship with an organization called Unico. It's uh, an organization that is made for Italian-American enhancement of culture, like thinking of our past and our family connections. I'm sure some first-generation Italians started it 50 years ago, and it's been going on ever since. And they basically meet for dinners a few times a year up in North Kansas City, and uh, these old Italians are still running it. I mean, uh, these guys, uh, uh, this remind me of my upbringing and watching my uncles and everyone get together and at Johnny Cascone's of all place. And so there's this big banquet hall, and Nico won a scholarship among 35 other students who won these scholarships. And the only requisite for the scholarships is they have to be at least part Italian, any part. Any part makes it awesome, right? So just as long as you're part Italian. So he fills it out, and he wins it. Now we're sitting at the table um, with another family who had a son, and their last name was Mesh. Our last name is Felice. Now Felice sounds a little ethnic to people here, but anyone who knows uh, Italian names, it's, it's a messed up Italian name. It was De Felice when my, father or my father's family still lived in Italy, but it got changed when it came here, when they came here. And sometimes Italians would change their names here on purpose. Like Billy Martin, the old manager for the Yankees, he was Martino, but they took the O off because they felt they were discriminated against as immigrants, especially in those early 1900s when they came up into the 1930s. That's a little bit of why my name got changed. But I was a little conscientious of all the Italian names I was looking at in the program. And so as you would imagine, um, they're starting to read through the names of all the students. And there's Tony Buffamonte, and there's Brian Castellani, and Johnny, Johnny Ranguso, and then there's Bob Smith. And then like all the old Italians would look at each other a little bit like, Smith must be his mother. He's got, it's got to be his mother's Italian. And, then, and so I was a little, sub, a little conscientious because there was a little, I, I sensed a little pause whenever, you know, an English-type name got mentioned and the old Italians kind of looking at each other. Um, when his name came through, he said it real well because he had to say it out loud, and I don't think anyone really noticed it. And, and like there was a Carol Van Zant. sorry to the Dutch people in the house or German people, I'm not sure which one it is, but the point is the girl right after took the focus off of his quasi-name. Here's the thing. If I wanted to go into that community and just have immediate rapport with them, whatever you think of it, I would just say, here's my son, Domenico Feliciano. And they'd be like, hey, what's up? Come on. So that's kind of what you have happen with Timothy. They're going to go into Jewish communities where these people are, they're mostly oppressed minority, especially if they're in Macedonia and Greece. They're a long way from Jerusalem and they're Jews. So they're picked on for being Jewish. It's important you stand up for being Jewish. That's the way they thought. So if this guy comes in, his mother's Jewish, and he hasn't been circumcised, that's going to be a problem for them right away. They're going to have to talk about this a little bit. Paul's like, I don't want to deal with that. We're just going to go there. Timothy, this is what's going to have to happen. And that's what Timothy does. For the gospel, they believe this would be helpful in this instance so they can come through and they can preach. This is an equipped team. You see it's a carefully ordered team. Um, When we support missionaries... Um, we really are careful to consider their fitness for the job they're called to do. Our missions committee um, will interview those missionaries. We listen heavily to the sending organization who knows them better. Then over the years, we get to know them and um, grow closer with them, more confident in them. You have a huge, huge uh, uh, opportunity tonight to come back and hear from two of our missionaries we've had for a long time, Phil and Amina File. And uh, they have been in India for a long time. Phil's a third-generation missionary. He met Amina when he was there growing up, and now they're married and have 
uh, beautiful children, and they're ministering very effectively there, three generations now. And you'll get to hear a bit of his story, what they're doing, what you're helping to support. Uh, but that's an example of a process. Talk about vetting over the course of generations with families, considering who would be well-ordered. I remember when Phil and I went to the same church in St. Louis when he was in seminary. He was a little ahead of me, and he was contemplating what the Lord would have him do. And he was telling people all these things, because he can, he can do a lot of things in ministry. Phil's very gifted. We're privately thinking to ourselves, how many people can speak the many languages you speak and know the culture? And we all thought he's going to go back to India. That makes the most sense. Now, the Lord worked in his heart to bring him back to that place that he's so well equipped and has helped plant churches now, plant another church. I say this to point out how particular and careful we should be when we strategize about any Christian mission and who we send. We want to make sure that they have been considered, we've evaluated, and they're ready and they're equipped. Paul goes with Silas, he brings Timothy, and we're going to find out he brings Luke as well. The passage reveals that to us. He has a great team assembled, and when we go into missions or when we go into outreach, when we do a local ministry, it's important to make sure that we're all wired for what we're doing, especially if we're in leadership, so that we can lead well, and that's what we have on display here. So what else does Paul uh, do in this missionary trip that helps give us some insight? Well, he has an exceedingly clear message. It's not confusing to know what he would bring as a message. He's got the team together. Now they're going. What are they going to do? Look at verse 4, and you'll see this clear message on display. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to, to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles. Remember, they just came from the Jerusalem council that clarified the gospels by faith in Christ alone. No addition of anything for salvation. So they were going to deliver this message. That's just another way of saying they're going to bring the gospel to them again. They'll do it from another angle. He brought it through once, they believed. Now he's going to come through confirming the gospel as others confirmed it. This would bolster Paul's authority and give him more footholds for preaching the gospel. And so what is the result of this clear message? It's very simple what he's bringing. The message of the gospel. Be careful about idols. The message of the gospel. Here's some pitfalls. That's so clear. It's so simple. It's so important. What what happens as a result? What does this do? Verse 5. So, as a result, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily, delivering the apostolic clarification of the gospel not only lent credibility to Paul, it re-bolstered them in the grace of God in Christ. It refreshed them. It made them stronger. They had heard it once before, now they're hearing it again, and they're stronger because of it. That's the effect of the preaching of the gospel regularly. New people come to faith in Christ. Old people become refreshed in their faith in Christ. And over and over again, through the life of the church, however old the church is, however old you are, it should never get old to hear that gospel message uh, re-mentioned. We're recalibrating, re-anchoring on the grace of God in Christ. And that's the mantle of the church to always be clear about Christ in the proclamation of him. And that's what you see on display in this simple missionary message that Paul and company are bringing. It's simple, but it's powerful. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. I think the simplicity that we see over and over again in the message that's preached by the missionaries, Paul in this case, should always serve as a checkpoint to us in the modern church. It's so easy to become distracted with all sorts of activities that are expected of the church, programs you might say. And we have programs. I'm not saying they're not important or don't have a part to play. They do. 
There are causes the church should get involved with. For sure, we're placed strategically in this time and place that has unique needs around in the community. We should be concerned about them, no question. We have a school for a reason. We have a youth ministry in the church. We have a ministry just for young girls, a ministry for just young boys. We have women's Bible studies, a men's study group. Uh, We have a children's church time. We have designated ministries Many of them. We support causes that are outside of just these walls, like the pro life cause, because we think it's a righteous cause. Um, We support uh, providing for the poor and the needy. We're one of the bigger givers, if you will, or contributors to the food pantry that our sister church leads. We should do all of these things. People who are born again will have a certain sensitivity to the plight of everybody and want to help. No question. But we can't get distracted from what our mantle is or the scope of the church's ministry is fundamentally, and that is to preach Christ. That, that's the, the gospel is Jesus, and that's our mantle that we cannot get distracted from. We should do other things. And I think if we preach the gospel clearly, and we are gathering that as individual believers in the church, you will necessarily be a different person. And you'll be a different person as a neighbor to your neighbor. And we'll be a different church as we consider things we can help and support. But those things are not equal with the gospel. They're not Christ. They're fruits that come from people who know the gospel. And the beauty of the ministry of Paul is he goes to all these places with all these problems, and his message is salvation through Christ. He can't fix all those problems on the spot, especially as he moves through as a missionary. But he'll give them the message that will bring personal transformation and then has opportunity to work itself out in the community when born-again people live in it. It's important to keep the order accurate. We've seen this already in the book of Acts, and now it's on display again with the simple message that he gives, a clear message, and they don't go off script when it comes to that message. Now look at the last section, the larger section of the text, and I want us to look at this example of the mission trip at work, one of the events that occurs and that begins this trip. We'll look at it in full next week as we get into the rest of the passage. They start the trip with a very defined plan. So you could say that they were on a trip that was defined. It, was, it had something you could identify as the mission or what they were accompl- hoping to accomplish, where they were going to go. But the trip was also guided. It was guided by wisdom that they had collectively, but it was dynamically guided by the guidance of the Holy Spirit as well. We see there's, there's this planning, but there's this lean, leaning on the Spirit of God to direct as they followed their plan. They kept their feet moving, and the Spirit of God moved them in certain ways to go where God wanted them to go. It's a beautiful picture of the balance of these two features when we are acting out in ministry. Look at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, when we're speaking of Asia here, we're not talking about China as we think of it. We're talking about Turkey. Um, That's where they've been already. That's considered Asia, Asia Minor. Um, They're moving towards the west, which would become Macedonia or Greece or Europe, as we would think of it today. But right now, they're still in Asia, and they're trying to go back to the cities they've been to. But the Spirit of God, it says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So for some reason, they were not able to be effective where they had been already, at least not in full. Verse 7, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Something, was, something about God's will was moving them away from where they had been to, to a new place further west. Now, notice it doesn't tell us what the Spirit did to forbid them. 
It could have been that they were finding no fruit or people weren't there to speak to or the Spirit in some audible way told them. In the apostolic times, things before the Word of God is finished, there's that kind of guidance that can happen. We see it from time to time. In fact, in this passage itself, we don't know how the Holy Spirit forbid, but we know that the Spirit did. They couldn't stay in Asia any longer. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. They kept going. They didn't just stop and say, oh, forget it. It's over. We're just going to stay here. We're going back home. They knew God had sent them to do this ministry, so they're going to keep moving, and the Lord will keep, keep guiding and directing them, and that's what they did. They went down to Troas, verse 9, and here is the revelation they needed. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. That would have been much further west. So now Paul has this vision. He's given this, this, uh, this communication to go further west. So he brings that information to his team. He doesn't say, Paul told us, get your stuff, pick it up, and we're going to go. You might anticipate that with Paul, but something careful happens here, and we should gather the balance. You'll notice it says later that they concluded. They were concluding that this is where they should go. Now, before we consider that more, I think something F.F. Bruce says helps us here. Bruce said, the missionary journeys of Paul exhibit an extraordinary combination of strategic planning and keen sensitivities to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Whether that guidance took the form of inward prompting or the overruling of external circumstances. They were sensitive to the Spirit's guidance, but they had a plan and they were following it. And they were a team speaking together about what God's will was. Come up Come over to Macedonia, the vision says and speaks. Now, verse 10 tells us what they did with this information. They were clearly looking for the next place to go. Paul has this vision. Verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's consider two things here. Number one, did you notice what Luke says? Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. This is where we know Luke joins them. At this point, Luke speaking in the first person, he's with them. I witness to this stuff now. So Luke, Dr. Luke is with him. Paul's a smart man. Um, he's got Silas with him. He's got Timothy with him. And he's bringing a doctor this time because he got malaria last time or something like it. So now Luke, and Luke happens to be a great historian on top of that. What a team he has assembled. And they're clear on their mission. And now they're deciding where to go next. Paul has a vision. They've been trying other stuff. Now Paul says, this is my vision, and then it says, we sought to go on into Macedonia, and this is what I want you to notice secondly, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The word concluding here means a process of deliberation. A process of discussion and consideration happened before the decision was made. There was an analysis before deciding to go on to Macedonia that the whole of them made. At this point, at least four people on the team saw the vision, considered the need, discussed or deliberated, then made their decision to go to Macedonia. I don't want us to read too quickly over this because missionary choices or outreach choices or ministry decisions we make for the church should go through a process of prayer and consideration. Sometimes there's some fits and starts um, looking for what it is that God would have us ultimately do. And we see that unfold even in the second missionary journey by the great apostle Paul and company. They had a guided and defined mission. It was defined, and it was also guided dynamically. 
you know, one of the great blessings of the different missionary efforts that have happened here at the church is the, the particular people the Lord has called to our body over the years. Um, several years ago when Woody Woodward came, he was not of a Presbyterian background, so he didn't understand decent and in good order as well. Um, he saw that as pretty slow and ineffective, I think is what he probably would say, and he was probably right about that. So he started telling us about the missionary uh, expositions that he had been leading to uh, to Moldova and started getting us excited about sending a team. I'm like, well, Woody, what do you do on these trips? He goes, well, we go preach the gospel, just like the book of Acts. I'm like, well, can you give me a little more than like, what that looks like? He goes, well, and then it, it started to shape up. It's a very defined trip. We go to this place, this place, and this place. We've already made contacts with these folks here. We preach the gospel here. Several people become Christians. We know there's a church here that's struggling and having some. I come and I come and bring encouragement with whoever comes with me. Then we go to the next place. We work with this. There's a mercy ministry that might be here. They need eyeglasses or they have a trade that they're teaching people out of jobs. And he starts to describe this trip. And I'm like, that is super well-defined and very particular. Um, we Presbyterians, we can get into that. I mean, that's pretty orderly right there. Then he said something got me nervous. He said, you know what else we do, Pastor? We raise money and then we just go through these places. And as the Lord leads, we give them money. Hold up, wait a minute, we have to have accounting, we have to know exactly what happens with every dollar. Don't worry, Pastor, we have every dollar accounted for. Trust me, he does. If you've gotten his reports, you know that he does. What he does is, he takes his team on their normal trip, he receives donations from us, anyone that will give to the five loaves, two fishes um, fund, he takes whatever money that is, reports what that money is to, the, to those who are leaders in the church, and then he goes around the places, and he and the team do the mission they're going to do, but from time to time, something will come up that's clearly in their minds, something the Lord has revealed to them that needs their assistance. They talk about it, they pray together, and they give. I think that's a good model. Have a a defined mission that we're part of and committed to that we stick with, but then be open to opportunities that God will raise up when you're in those places. And since he's come, in all of our mission trips, it's not as much maybe, but we'll have some monies aside for those who are leading the trip when they see a need arise, whether it be in Juarez or the Omaha Nation or wherever we might go, um, that we could give towards that to help promote the preaching of the gospel that could be in many secondary ways, but to strengthen the church, to encourage them so that the gospel can go forward and we can leave a positive impact where we go. That is trusting in those who we have said are able and ready to go. It's a great picture of balancing planning and definition with being reliant upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit guides us on these kinds of trips. It's a beautiful picture, and look at what happens in this particular case. They get to move on. So setting sail from Troas, verse 11, they made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. So now they have entered into Greece or Macedonia. They have reached the place where the vision told them to go. And so they start preaching the gospel with incredible effectiveness as they move through. First, they stop at Philippi. They move on to Thessalonica, then to Ephesus, or to Corinth, and then to Ephesus. All these strategic places in the history of the church as they have been guided to do just this. But there's a story I want to leave with that starts their missionary journey with the first convert, you might say. Um, Someone had already been moved towards the Lord through Judaism, now hearing the fullness of the gospel coming forth. Verse 13, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer 
and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Something else we should see about the mission is that it is about bringing the message of the gospel to everyone. Um, In this day, it was a very chauvinistic period in the history of the world, and so uh, you might say, if they were these big missionaries, uh, I want to speak in the center of the city at the most populous place with all the men of the city. Instead, there's no synagogue in Philippi, so they go to where people would normally pray. And who are praying? Faithful women, which, by the way, is not unusual. It's typically the way God works is that he speaks to the woman at the well or to the women at the tomb of Jesus after the resurrection. Um, women have a very important part to play in what God unfolds in his plan. And we see it to be the case here. The first convert in Macedonia happens to be an Asian woman who's at the gate praying because she's interested in God. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's the way any missions or any ministry is effective. The Lord must open hearts. We proclaim the message, and the Lord must open hearts. And that's what happens with Lydia. Who is Lydia? Well, you know this much about her. She was a wealthy businesswoman, um, a seller of purple goods. That is usually fabric or clothing, but it could be other things that were dyed the color purple. The dye was made from a certain kind of shell that was unique to where she was from. She was from the region of Lydia, a city called Thyatira. Her name was probably not Lydia. She became known as that because she was from that region, and she was a foreigner there. But she was an an astute businesswoman from all we can tell. She had a house big enough to have the whole company come and stay. She was already showing the fruits of her salvation by wanting to be baptized and then also by showing hospitality to the apostles and their company. It's a beautiful picture of this person um, coming to faith. You might call her the first convert of the second missionary journey, maybe the first convert in Europe, even though she is transplanted. It's an important important uh, epoch in the time of the church in an important and strategic conversion for sure. And notice what she does, verse 15, after she was baptized, key phrase, and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She insisted that they come and stay. Next week, Lord willing, we'll move into another example of what's called a household baptism. We refer, I referred to it a little bit in the baptism this morning. It gets its origin from the concept in the Old Testament of households being called into covenant by God. In Genesis 17, yes, God calls Abraham, tells him to be circumcised, but also it says later in 17, verse 24 to 27, it says your household needs to bear this mark too, including his servants and people who came under his roof. So this is a a very understandably Jewish concept of the whole household comes under the faith of the head of the household, and she represents the head of that household. We're not given the details of her house. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says, and again, I'll expand on this a bit when we meet the Philippian jailer who also has his household baptized. But listen to what Sinclair Ferguson wrote about this. The occurrence of household baptisms in the New Testament is best understood as an expression of the Old Testament covenantal principle of the solidarity of the family, while the very idea of household assumes the possibility, even the statistical probability, of a wide variety of ages, including children and infants. This per se is not the significant point, and it's not. The point is that baptism of an entire household as such echoes the pattern governing circumcision in Genesis 17. 
We'll see more of this next week. But for now, let's appreciate the wonderful development at the beginning of this second missionary journey as we see the church just start to expand and take root in various places. Paul assembles this team, an equipped team, a team that's identified with the gifts necessary to carry out the mission. They have a clear message they go on the mission with. They are unwavering about that message. We see it told in various ways, but it's always the same message, no matter who the crowd. And finally, we see as they go, they have a plan. It's particular. It's accountable. People know what they're doing. They know where they're going. But they are not closed off to the guidance of the Holy Spirit that may come through different means. They agree together with what the, Lord, the will of the Lord is. Through his word, obviously, we have the advantage of the fullness of the whole Bible to pour over as we consider what God's will is but they are ready and looking forward to the way God might supernaturally guide them as they carry out that mission. I think this story gives us much to chew on as we consider what God's called us to as a local church in the efforts and endeavors that we are called to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this picture uh, of the early church's activity and expansion, for all the particular ways in which you have moved to the de- in the details of the story, uh, the people involved, Uh, the places they are in, and the strategy that we can see unfolding. Lord, I pray that you would make us to be a zealous people for the gospel, people that are willing and ready to jump into any endeavor that might spread your gospel here in our local congregation, our local community, or beyond these walls, whatever it may be. Give us sensitivity to the expansion of your church, to the preaching of your gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's